morning, West Park. I always love when we sing Joy to the World at Christmas. A friend of mine uh, went to Moody Bible Institute, or as Canadians say it, Moody Bible Institute, uh, in the 70s. And uh, his ministry assignment was to uh, work in the inner city with inner city kids. So he went to work with inner city kids. And at Christmas time, he loaded them all in a school bus and he took them to a retirement home, a senior's home, to sing Christmas carols with all these inner city kids. And the seniors could make a request. So one of the senior people said, uh, how about joy to the world? He said, that'd be great. And he said to one of these kids, who knows joy to the world? And the boy steps up and says, I know it. And he says, can you start us? And he says, sure. And this kid steps up to the mic and he belts out at the top of his lungs, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. <laughs> now, you've got to be old to, for that to make any sense at all. But it's a different joy to the world. What a start to a sermon. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father the scriptures tell us to declare to the next generation that which is of you. And may we be found faithful in that. Thank you for these kids, each and every one of them. May we have seen this morning future men and women of God doing your bidding, declaring the glory of Jesus wherever you put them. Uh, we look forward with anticipation. Thank you for these children. May we uh, be faithful in loving them, encouraging them, ministering to them, and living out a life that is an accurate reflection for them of the Lord Jesus. And uh, help your servant this morning, Lord, as we open your word, and uh, just help me in clarity of thinking and anoint my speech this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, as we continue in our series Anchored. Uh, well-known passage, you've likely uh, read this, heard this taught on or preached on, Hebrews chapter 12. What I want to talk about this morning, sort of on the heels of where we were last week as we talked about that great hall of faith of those men and women of faith of chapter 11 is I want to talk about keeping on, keeping on in the spiritual life and in particular, how do you uh, avoid spiritual fatigue? Because you can get fatigued spiritually. And uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us a little bit about that. So follow along as we read the word of the Lord, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. We're just going to cover three verses this morning. Therefore, so in light of what we've read back in chapter 11, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. I want to start with four exhortations that we see in the first couple of verses there. Four exhortations. Look at verse one. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a, cl a cloud of witnesses, the first thing I want you to think about is remember those who have finished well. Remember those who have finished well. And that takes us back to where we were last week. Imperfect people who lived great lives of faith, followed God in... Uh, different scenarios and in different ways 
And they lived consistently, but not perfectly. Certainly they were deliberate. And they had a faith that resulted in a response in the way they lived, not simply in a uh, mental assent and agreement, but in actual life engagement with God. And as we look back over that, uh, let me read a quote from uh, Adolf Safir, who was a messianic Jew, a Jew who had came to Christ and a fantastic missionary to Jews. He wrote this, of all the saints of God lived, suffered, endured, and conquered by faith, shall not we also, if the saints, and he's talking about the Old Testament saints, if the saints who lived before the incarnation, before the redemption was accomplished, before our high priest entered the heavenly sanctuary, trusted in the midst of discouragement and trials, how much more ought we who know the name of Jesus, who have received the beginning installment of the messianic promise? We've got to remember those who came before us and exercise great faith. Now, let me just say this. You don't find faith in those folks who came before. And I'll talk a little bit about that here in a few minutes. You don't find faith in them. You draw encouragement from them. You draw encouragement from those who have come before you. So the first thing you must do because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, is we remember those who finished well. The second exhortation I want to give you this morning is to deal with the hindrances to spiritual growth. You see what we read this morning there in verse 1? It says, let us lay aside every weight. Every weight. Let us lay aside every weight. Well, what's the writer saying? Uh, the, the picture here is you know, carrying unnecessary baggage in your spiritual life. And that could be a problem, right? It, it may be internal stuff that you're carrying, internal baggage that's hindering your spiritual growth. You know, you may be carrying hurt. You may be crying, uh, carrying anger. You may be carrying pride. And that's something that's unnecessary baggage that you're carrying. That's a weight that you are are carrying that you need not carry. Most of you, if you've ever watched Olympic sort of level running, you'll know that uh, uh, these shoes that they wear, these spiked shoes they wear, they're weighed in ounces because they don't want to have anything extra. And, and you have to deal with the hindrances to your spiritual growth because you're in training for the spiritual life. And the, one of the ways you become fatigued very quickly, and this happens to people all the time in the spiritual life, they, they say, wow, you know what? Uh, man, I'm really tired. You know, I'm really tired. And that's because they're training for a 100-meter sprint in the Christian life. And it doesn't matter how fast you are in 100 meters if you're running a 2,000-meter race. Right? You're going you're gonna to hit the wall. You're going to burn out. And so you're training, and one of the ways you train is you, you watch these weights to your spiritual growth that hold you back. Uh, sometimes these things, uh, you know, can be external of us, not internal like the pride and some of those things. Sometimes it's external. Some people, you know, you may, you may be involved in a caustic friendship that actually hinders your spiritual life. Uh, you may be spiritually lazy or lethargic. Uh, I was uh, at a little Christmas gathering last night uh, with a guy who's an elder, uh, for many years was an elder in his church, and we were sitting next to each other, and, and the guy who owned the house we at, he said, I'm going to put the hockey game on. Now, 
I'm, I'm not into sports. You can probably tell that by looking at me, right? I look more like a bowling pin than I do a, you know, anything else to do with sports. But anyways, he says, well, I'm going to put the hockey game on, which his wife said, why are you putting the hockey game on? And the guy next to me, I said, I said, do you watch a lot of hockey? He said, I used to. He said, started to consume me. He said, I started to rearrange my life for when hockey games are on. And he said, I, don't, I had to deal with that. I thought, well, that's a really courageous thing, right? Hobbies, sports. Okay, you ready? Worshiping your kids. There's things that can hinder your spiritual life. And I'm not talking about living legalistically. Legalism is this. It's when you say the shed blood of Christ on the cross plus something else will add to my salvation. That's legalism. I'm talking about that. I'm talking about living a disciplined life and setting aside those things which hinder your spiritual growth. How do you do that best? I'm going to give you a statement. You do that best when you do this, when you calibrate your conscience to the word of God, not to the word. Let me say, let's say that again. When you calibrate your conscience, not to the world, but to the word of God, and it's interesting to me how often I'll hear people say things and it's some little statement that somebody has posed on Facebook or, or on X or, or on some social media platform and they've done it under the umbrella of Christian thinking and you read this and it's pithy and it's catchy and it might alliterate and you go, you know what? That's all good and well, but when you look at that through the lens of a biblical view, that is not solid. And, and it can sound warm and fuzzy and all of that, but it's because it sounds good is because we've got far too often our conscience is calibrated to the world. Why is that da dangerous? Because man can only determine what is legal, but God determines what is moral. And those can be two different things. There's plenty of things that are legal that are immoral. Did you know that? Plenty of things. That's why you must calibrate your conscience. And that will help you to see if you're carrying unnecessary weight. The, sec the, the, the third thing I want you to know, third exhortation, is go one step further. Not simply set aside every weight to your spiritual growth. The third thing is this, go to battle with besetting sins. Go to battle with besetting sins. See what it said there? Lay aside every weight, and then the second part of this is, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. What's a besetting sin? It simply means this, it's something that is constantly present or attacking or coming at you. And you're like, good grief. This, I, I, this is on me all the time. You know what? Besetting sins can be uh, different things for all of us. Some people, you know what besetting sin is? Cash. They see cash around, man. That is, it's a besetting sin. For some of you, it's the internet. And what you view on the internet, besetting sin. Uh, for some of you, it, it could be uh, just rage. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. But you see, there's a difference between lay aside every weight and, and the sin which so easily ensnares. See, the weight will slow you down, but the sin can take you out. 
That's the difference. You know, the carrying the extra weight, the sin can take you out. Because when you get ensnared, you're stopped. You know, you see an animal that's ensnared. It isn't going anywhere. It's stopped. It's stuck. It's trapped. And that's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.5, an athlete is not crowned unless they compete how? Does anybody know? According to the rules. According to the rules. And we're in a athletic metaphor here. It's going to unpack a little bit more. And that's what faith is, right? It's, it's acting on what we know. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Paul says, you know, don't yield your body to sin. You know, you, you don't have to obey sin anymore. You don't have to listen to sin anymore. You don't have to yield yourself up to sin. You don't have to uh, partake in the demands of sin. Now, does Paul mean that it's impossible to sin once you become a Christian? No, he, he knows. He, he speaks of that, you know. I, I do the things I don't want to do. I'm at war with this. But he is at war. He's at battle with it. Now, the beauty of this as a Christian is that you know that you have the assurance that never again will you be left helpless under sin's power. Amen? You have been armed. You have the armor. You have God with you. And you're now free to fight and able to fight and armed to fight. But you have to enter into the battle against those besetting sins. And if you don't do that, lay aside every weight, the things that hold you back, be careful of the besetting sins. Those are the things that could take you out. You will be spiritually fatigued all of your Christian life. You'll be spiritually fatigued. Let me give you the assurance of Isaiah 42, 13. I love this verse. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. In the Old Testament, on several occasions, it says God is a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout and he will raise a war cry. That is the God that indwells you by way of the Holy Spirit. God is a warrior with you and through you. So the question for reflection I want you to ask yourself this morning with this idea of the sin which so easily ensnares you, the question I want you to reflect on is this. What does Satan know about you that you wish he didn't? What does Satan know about you that you wish he didn't? Right? What, what is it that is your temptation zone? Right? And he knows that. He's going to take a run at you with that over and over again. Number four, fourth exhortation is this. Run till you are done. Run till you are done. Keep on in the spiritual life. That's why the last part of the verse is, and let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Well, how do you know when you're done? Well, God will tell you. Take you home. You know you're done. You have a race before you. And, and you see, let us run with endurance the race. It's not a jog. It's not a stroll. You're running. You're going to give this your very best. The race that is set before us, interesting statement, isn't it? You know, I, I'm convinced that we all sort of have different races, different events. So, some people's lives are very short. You know, it's kind of a 200-meter race, the race that's set before them. And they, and they run at full tilt. You look like people like David Livingston. Some of these people, great men and women of faith who lived very short lives and had massive spiritual impact. 
lived out lives of great faith. Uh, if you remember back to 1976, there was a significant event in Canada. Does anybody remember? The Olympics. Somebody said it. The Olympics were in Montreal. We're still paying for them, by the way. Um, <clears throat> So they had the Olympics in Montreal, and I was, in, I was going into grade eight that summer, and I watched the Olympics. Like, I watched a lot of them. It was kind of cool. You know, it's in our, my own country and everything. I watched it. And the thing that I got really excited and really intrigued by was hurdles. Anybody here like hurdles? Watch. And it's just such an incredible thing because people who are Olympic, world-class, world-caliber, you know, hurdle runners, they, they run down there and they, whoosh, and they go over those hurdles, right? Come and do that again. Whoosh, they go over those hurdles, right? So I'm thinking, well, that looks cool. I, I, I'm going I'm to think, and in grade eight, I knew they had hurdles. You could run hurdles in grade eight. So in the fall of 1976, the PA announcement, this afternoon out on the, out on the soccer field will be uh, the beginning of track and field. If you want to come and try out for track and field, you show up on the field. So at the end of the school day, I throw on my gym shorts and my T-shirt, and I go out there. I walk out on the field. I walk over, and I look at these things. And I, I say to a guy, is that the high jump or is that a hurdle? Because <laughs> when you got a 28-inch inseam, things look high. He goes, no, that's a hurdle. I'm like, the thing was up to here on me. I'm like, I can't jump over that thing. I, I couldn't get over that thing with a ladder. I found out very quickly, hurdles were not my event. It's not going to be my race. It just wasn't my thing. And that was okay, right? That was okay. What, what, what is it that God has for you? And are you giving it your very best? Here's the big idea this morning. Here's the big idea this morning. The Christian life is not a spectator experience. Not a spectator experience. If your spiritual life is mostly composed of showing up here on Sunday morning... And you come and you watch, you know, somebody who's, you know, uh, you know the professional get up and, and, you know, gifted musicians. And you say, wow, those guys are really good. I, 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 I'm not musical. I, but, you know, you watch and you say, man, that's really good. And, and then, you know, somebody gets up and preaches and you say, oh, they, you, know, they, they, you know, they can do that, I guess. And, 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 you know, and you're just sort of watching and, 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 you know, you're just a spectator. You know, the problem with that is you won't last in your spiritual life because soon you'll find something better to watch. If that's your spiritual life. If, if you're like a Super Bowl, uh, you know, uh, I think it was one of the sports announcers said a few years ago, said the Super Bowl is uh, 70,000 guys who desperately need exercise screaming at 22 men who desperately need some rest. Right? And that's what church can become. You know, you just you become a spectator in the event. And you're not training. And you'll just get tired. Right? Because if you're just a spectator and then somebody says, hey, 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 you, 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 you know what? Uh, we need you to run a, an 800. I can't run an 800. I haven't trained. I'm not ready. I've been a spectator. From the word go. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, got to set aside the sin, hold you back, set aside the sin, which will knock you out and get running with endurance. The race that is set before you. And then he gives one absolute. This, friends, is absolutely baseline critical 
to keeping on in the spiritual life and not falling out, wearing out, or burning out. It's right here in verse number two. Let me give you the principle. One absolute, fix your mind and affections on Christ alone. You see what he wrote? Looking to Jesus. And then look at how that's expanded there in verse number two. The founder and perfecter of our faith, we'll come back to that, and then comma, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. See, Jesus was looking to the Father. He was looking past the shame of the cross, looking to the Father, saying, one day I'll be seated back with my Father in glory. And that's why we read, and is seated. And the reason why he's seated, we talked about this a week or two ago. He's seated because his work is done. He sat down. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Then verse 3, consider him. Looking unto Jesus. You know, the the word there is a Greek word. It's aphoro. And it literally means transfixed. Anybody here have kids with video games? You get a kid with a video game. Can, Can I talk to you for a second? Yep. Can I have your attention? Yep. The house is on fire. Yep. And they're going to take their eyes off that screen, right? They're just, they're transfixed. They're captivated. That's what we're talking about. Look under, fix your gaze resolutely, unhindered on Jesus, and then consider him. In the beginning of verse 3. This is, a, this is an invitation. It's a command of contemplation. You just fix your gaze and your mind be transfixed on Jesus. Don't look to someone else or somewhere else for that which only Jesus can provide. Let me take you to the two warnings quickly. Verse three, two warnings. Who endured from sinners such hostility against him including religious people. So that you may not, what? Grow weary or faint-hearted. If you're going to transfix yourself and, and look towards Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that means you don't place your hope in others. Don't place your hope in others, friends. You know, being in ministry as long as I've been in ministry... Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've met somebody and they say, oh, you're, you're a pastor, you're a preacher. Yeah, 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 I, 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 I used to be a Christian. I used to go to church and go, oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. And then I'll say, oh, well, can you tell me what happened? Like, you're not going anymore or you don't consider yourself a preacher? Yeah. And I can usually tell, not always, but I can usually tell almost just by the countenance that begins to emerge what they're going to tell me. And there's this unique and certain countenance that comes about when they start to unpack where they went amiss or astray or they lost their spiritual way, and it's usually tied to a person who destroyed their faith, discouraged their faith, disrupted their faith. Uh, I remember several years ago I had 
uh, lunch with a vice president. And when I was living in South Carolina, I had vice president with a bank in South Carolina. Young guy, handsome guy and everything. He was a friend of, a friend of mine who was also uh, high up in this bank. And he said, you should have lunch with so-and-so. And I said, yeah, I'll have lunch with him. So we had lunch and we're talking. And I said to him, Ben, I said, uh, you know, uh, Tell me about your spiritual life. Are you on any kind of a spiritual journey? Do you, know, you think about spiritual things? He said, well, no, I really don't. I said, oh, have you ever thought about it? Oh, yeah. And I could see his countenance. I said, can you tell me about it? He goes, yeah, I'll tell you. He said, I don't talk about it, but I'll tell you. Ben grew up in a fatherless, single-parent home. And at school, he became friends with the pastor's son at the church in the town he grew up in, South Carolina. And they became besties, best buddies. And with that, the pastor took Ben under his arm and really became his dad. And so whatever his best friend did, Ben was included. They went on family vacations with them and they did stuff. They went to the beach together. They went to the mountains together. They went to sports together. And, and, and Ben looked to that pastor and that pastor to him was, you know, wow. And then that pastor ran off with a woman in the church. Left the ministry, ran away from his faith. And Ben said, I tapped out. I tapped out. Because to Ben, the pastor was Jesus instead of Jesus being Jesus. That doesn't take the pastor off the hook. Believe me, it doesn't take the pastor off the hook. Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. If you can turn there quickly in your Bible, turn there and mark these verses. Here is watershed verses about the danger of placing your hope in others. Right here in the word of God. Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Because that's what happens ultimately. If you put your hope and your faith in man, your heart will be turned away from the Lord because there's nothing they can do generally, but sooner or later there's going to be a disappointment. That's why the old saying is you should never meet your heroes. Have you ever heard that statement? He is like a shrub in the desert and will not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in the uninhabited salt land. I hear all the time people who have cooled to faith or abandoned faith and it's usually premised on a disappointment because their eyes are fixed on a guy over there instead of a king on a throne. Now this can also happen amongst churches. People get fixed on a particular church and what that church does and its accomplishments. That creates comparison and competition. It's not a good thing. Uh, you, you may have heard, you may know this, that West Park, I think about three or four Sundays ago, had the highest Sunday attendance they've ever had in their history of the church on a Sunday morning. Praise God. And we could say, wow, we're doing things right at West Park. No, we're experiencing God's favor. We're experiencing God's favor. God's favor is his supernatural access where we couldn't get it otherwise. I want you to know this. 
There's a danger in celebrity church and superstar pastors. I've been around a lot of them. I lived in the South. I was around a lot of brand name pastors. In fact, a friend of mine, a Southern guy who loves Jesus, he used to always say this. You know, there's no small churches and there's no big pastors in God's view. It's true. When you start to fix your hope in your church, it results in conceit and then it results in deceit, right? I want you to know this. I've been around several celebrity pastors up close where I've had lunch or dinner with them. I've had coffee with them. I mean, I could name you some brand names. And I only tell you this to tell you this. When you get up close to them, they're not that great. They put on their pants one leg at a time. They don't walk on water. I had a celebrity pastor tell me, we're sitting and, and, and talking, and he, and, and he blurts this out. You know, he says, I got a crazy propensity for adultery. I said, pardon me? He goes, yeah. He had a church of many thousands. He said, if I don't surrender my flesh to the Lord Jesus and crucify it, he said, I'd be a mess. He said, I've never acted on it. But he said, I know my own heart. I remember, I remember I was, uh, I was at a pastor's house in Atlanta and they had had a few couples over who were new to their church and this one couple said, we used to go to so-and-so church. If I said the pastor, 95% of you would know his name. They said, we used to go in so-and-so church and they, he said, oh yeah. He said, yeah, he said, we went and saw our pastor's house. He lives in a mansion. It was all gated and house so high up on a hill. And, 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 and you could tell they were disillusioned by that. They'd put their hope in him, and then when they saw the lifestyle, he was like, mm. so, so this pastor that we were sitting at his dining room table, he's like, come here, and he, and he takes them off, they go, and they came back, and they all had the giggles, and, and they said, to, I said, where'd you guys go, and they said, he showed us his underwear drawer, <laughs> he said, I'm going to be full disclosure, don't fix your hope in men or women, or some famous Bible teacher, or somebody who looks good 500 miles away. Fix your gaze unto Jesus. Look at verse 2. Why? Because he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's about Jesus, friends. It's not about church or a pastor or a worship style, a denomination, a theological construct. Listen carefully. This is going to make some of you a bit nervous when I say this. It's not even about the Bible. Ultimately, end game. I go to churches all the time. All we want is to know the Bible. Then you are selling yourself short. You want to know the Bible so you can look like Jesus. Not just know the Bible. That's just knowledge that puffs up. I know a lot of the Bible, and some days I go, man, I know a lot of the Bible. I should look more like Jesus. Good grief. My prayer is that five years from now, when I hear about West Park Church, and somebody tells me about West Park Church, in the first couple of sentences, I'll hear the name Jesus in there. Not how big it is or how good it is that the word Jesus. You know, your next pastor, when your next pastor comes, don't pick him because he really knows the Bible. He's really good. That's important. You know what? You want a man to come and lead you 
that shows you what Jesus looks like. That's what you want. Paul says, imitate me while I do what? I imitate Jesus. I gotta keep moving because the trap door is gonna open. <laughs> Second thing, don't get distracted by your surrounded surroundings and circumstances. See, first you fix your eyes on Jesus. See, if you fix your eyes on Jesus, you gotta take your eyes off something else. You gotta take it off the people that you might put your hope or trust in, and you gotta take your eyes off your surroundings and circumstances because they could fatigue you. You look around, you mean, things aren't going that great. I won't have you turn there. But write down Matthew chapter 14. It's going to be a familiar passage. Disciples are in a boat. Storm comes up. It's a ghost. No, it's Jesus. Peter says, if it's you, Lord, I'm going to get out of the boat. The Lord says, okay, Peter, come on. And Peter begins to walk towards Jesus. And then it tells us that Peter saw the wind. And he went, row, row. I should have stayed in the boat. And he begins to do what? See, when he had his gaze transfixed on Jesus, he was walking on water. But as soon as he looked around, see, that's how he saw the wind and the waves and everything. He said, oh my goodness, what am I doing out here? You have to take your eyes off your surroundings and your circumstances. Remember, he's, he's a guy that he does that later in his life. So what's my exhortation to you this morning, church? 2 Timothy chapter 4. The Apostle Paul. He's taken the words of Hebrews. He's lived it out. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He said, I didn't get weighed down, I didn't get worn out, I didn't get ensnared by sin and get knocked out, trapped, stopped in my tracks. I kept on in faith. I fixed my eyes on Jesus. Listen, listen. You see what he says? I have finished the race. You, you, you can't be first, but you can finish. You may not be flashy, but you can finish. You may not be some famous Christian, that's okay, you can finish. My, my daughter lives in Australia, and if you've ever been to Australia, they don't have much in the way of ice skating. There's not a lot of rinks. If you want to play hockey, they'll move to Australia. In the year 2000, Steve Bradbury became an Australian hero because he was the first Australian to win a gold medal in the Winter Olympics. And he won it in short track speed skating. And the funniest thing was that Steve Bradbury was... By far not the best runner, uh, skater in the short track speed skating. He was against that, that Anton Ono. Remember that American that was like a shot out of a cannon? But he was in this race, short track, you know, and it's fast, right? Short, it's like crazy. And all the people were in the race. There were some Asian skaters, unbelievably gifted, well-trained, fast. And there's Americans, some Canadians, and old Steve Bradbury from Australia, Mike. And Steve Bradbury is in last place. He's dead last. And everybody in front of him, you know what they do? They smashed into each other. And they fell down. 
And Steve Bradbury comes around, hey, good day, mates. And he <laughs> gets himself a gold medal. He wasn't the fastest. He wasn't the most athletic. He wasn't the most gifted. He wasn't the best trained. He got a gold medal for one reason. He finished. You got to finish. You got to keep on. You have to finish. And when you finish, verse 8, 2 Timothy chapter 4, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Listen to this. Listen to what Paul says. Which the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord will award to me on that day. The Lord is going to anoint Paul with a crown of righteousness. Beats a gold medal any day, amen? The Lord Jesus, hey, you have finished. You have kept the faith. I have a crown of righteousness. The king will crown you. But it's better than that because verse 8 has a comma in it. It doesn't just say, will award to me on that day. There's a comma, and Paul writes, and not only to me, but to also who loved his appearing, including people who followed me at West Park Church in London. Isn't that good? That you will be crowned. If you keep on, if you keep on, one day the Lord Jesus will say, well done. Here's your crown. Don't grow faint-hearted. Keep on. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father God, may we not grow spiritually fatigued, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him despised the shame of the cross. May that be our reality this day. May we not be ensnared by sin. May we not be weighed down with baggage we shouldn't be carrying. May we never put our hope in others or get crushed by our circumstances, but fix our gaze on Jesus. May it be so. Amen.